What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. This is In Liberty and Health. I'm back today with a very special guest who I'm very excited to have on. Um, we unexpectedly are twinning. We're both wearing the same hat. I was going to wait to see if he noticed, but uh, I, I, I couldn't help it. I noticed he was wearing it and I had to say something first. So uh, I got Rob Wolf with me today. How you doing, brother? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Of course. No, I'm super stoked. Um, I also have to put this out there. Your electrolytes probably saved my life <laughs> on my carnivore journey when I started about two years ago. Um, I, I've since gone off for about six months now and reintroduced some carbohydrates and some other stuff. But um, I remember dealing with the digestive issues, energy issues, and I started intermittent fasting and taking electrolytes. And that was like night and day. And uh, it was a real game changer for me. They're delicious, and I, I still use them all the time to this day, even though I'm consuming about probably 200 to 250 grams of carbs a day. I just I can't get enough of them. Yeah, yeah. It, it's um, It's been an interesting ride with that stuff. Like the, uh, I would have never thought that there was kind of a blue ocean hidden in the, the, the Red Sea of electrolytes and you know sports drinks and all that stuff but we we appear to have found one so and and uh yeah i'm, I'm stoked it's working well for you and uh, don't forget with the holidays like it makes a, a hell of a a cocktail drink mixer most of the time too so you can you, know you can get double duty i love the mango chili i'm pretty sure when i was in ocean city and I kind of went no bars hold and just, you know, fried cheesecake, you name it. I was face down in all the junk food you could possibly imagine. I'm pretty sure at a couple of times I had the lemon habanero electrolytes and I put those in a couple of margaritas and it, it, it was pretty fucking good. Actually. It'll pull you back from the brink. Yeah, it's pretty legit. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I guess on a personal note, have you ever uh, taken those in the morning after? Because, you know, people always tell you when you're hungover, you need to drink Gatorade because of the electrolytes. Mm -hmm. And you know, the electrolytes, it's like a pinch of salt that's in Gatorade versus your electrolytes, which are, you know, real electrolytes. Right. Um, have you actually found that to be helpful? I, I mean, it, it, this is as anecdotal as it gets, sure. right? You know, I yeah. mean, there's no randomized control trial on this. And I don't even know how you could like standardize for severity of a Spring hangover. Break. You, you know, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, if I'm doing... I mean, just in general, that that's kind of more, it, I'll use something like that as a base for whatever I'm drinking. I don't, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm allergic to wheat, so I can't really do beer. And then I'll do a little bit of wine, which wine will, I'm almost 50 now and wine will kick, kick my ass pretty good. But I do notice that if I have some electrolytes after having that, and then potentially the following day, like it, it's uh, dramatically better, you know, it's not as, as impactful. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so you could get like some Kahlua and uh, put some chocolate electrolytes in there, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And uh, the, that is one of our recommended like holiday uh, oh, really? options. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. yeah. 
Yeah, you uh, nailed that one. Yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't even think about that, but hell yeah, I'll have to try it sometime. Do an Irish car bomb or something like that. Yep. Now Irish car bombs are straight and total gut bombs. You know, Jesus Christ, I hadn't had those in forever, and I think I, last time I had one, I'm pretty sure I ended up puking. So yeah, it's it's bad. Um, how did you come to the realization that electrolytes were like a thing and important? Because I remember hearing you on different shows saying like, "Hey, I salt my food," and I've kind of helped people through their carnivore journey as well as somebody who did it for two years and was performing at, I would say, you know, more athletically than most. Um, it, it seems like, you know, hey, yeah, I salt the hell out of my food and maybe I eat some seafood, so I should get enough there. But I don't think people understand that the human body does feel a lot better, especially in a low carb situation with a little bit more salt. So what was kind of like, how did you find out that that was so important? Well, I, I flailed for the better part of 20 years. And then I asked some people who were smarter than I am about this. And uh, my friends, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, they're the co-founders of both Element, but then uh, uh, this uh, online training program called Keto Gains. And they just work with hundreds of thousands of people doing these, these uh, ketogenic diet, you know, body composition reset things. And the, the results they get are just amazing. They have people doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, you know, CrossFit and all kinds of high level stuff. I'm like, how are they doing this? You know, and I kind of stalked those guys and had them look at what I was doing. And when they looked at what I was eating, they're like, your protein, carbs, fat are fine, but you're probably super deficient in so electrolytes, but specifically sodium. And I said, oh, no, no, I'm sure that's fine. I salt my food and like their head probably almost rolled off their shoulders from rolling their eyes so hard, you know, because they've heard this, uh, a thousand, you know, 10,000 times. And so it took about a year more of me struggling and flailing around and then patiently just saying, no, you probably need more sodium. And then one day it was literally like, Hey man, just grab some pickle juice, take a big swig of it and then go do your training and tell us how it goes. I'm like, Oh my God, like that way I had the low gear. I didn't have that, that like super just like stressed feeling of, of like trying to dig so deep. Like I, I, I actually felt like more like I had had carbs or, or something because I tend to eat pretty low, low carb too, which is great for my cognition and historically hasn't been fantastic for my, my athletic performance. And once we figured that out, we, uh, we, one, I was like, Oh my God, electrolytes are important. And they're like, yes, you're an idiot. And we've known this for 10 years, you know, welcome to the club basically. And we, it, when I looked out at, at the community that I serve and then the folks that, that they serve, I was like, why don't we do some sort of free guide for this, you know? And so we made this keto weight thing and it's this much salt, this much no salt, which is the potassium chloride, some magnesium citrate, lemon juice, stevia, water, shake it up. There you go. And we, we, we didn't even have like an email, you know, requirement to get it, just posted it up and within four months, we had like a half million downloads of this thing. And it was just going like crazy, you know, and we started getting tagged on social media where folks were like, Oh, you know, love the keto aid. I feel so much better. But when I travel TSA doesn't like my three bags of white powder, you know, and so could you guys do some sort of a stick pack deal or something. And so that was really the whole like the superficially, but the whole story of the company had uh, I figured out that I was being an idiot and not getting enough um, sodium. I realized that a ton of the people that I tried to serve were in a similar boat. And so we did this freemium offering to try to 
help people and it went like gangbusters, you know, and, and, uh, and then it was actually the folks that were getting benefit from the keto aid that gave us the idea, why don't you do an electrolyte drink, you know? And so we, we did that like five years ago, I had no thought that I was going to be, you know, a salt peddler or something like that, but that, you know, here, here I am now. You know, I was thinking about it earlier. I was going to introduce you as the saltiest man on earth, but uh, you know, I could kind of go up in the air. Um, I heard Zach Bitter once talk about this, but uh, actually it might've been when you were on his show, but I think you guys were talking about how important sodium is and looking at sodium on a low carb diet almost is like your carbohydrate intake because it can be that kind of performance enhancer almost where um, if you listen to someone like James Antonio, hopefully I said that right. Um, He says, if you take, I think it's two tablespoons of salt pre-workout that increases blood volume within like a half hour or so. And my individual experience of that as a guy who's been lifting now consistently for about 10 years is that if I do, you know, do some salt a little bit before my workout, that that does make a huge difference. And especially when I was lower carb, um, that did make a world's difference. So um, have you kind of found that to be the case that salt is key and kind of performance on low carb? Yeah, it, it, on low carb, but it, it, even at higher carb levels, depending on the activity, mm-hmm. uh, uh, volume, duration, heat, humidity. So the American Council of Sports Medicine, ACSM, their guideline for, for athletes is seven to 10 grams of sodium per day depending on activity level, heat, humidity, those sorts of things. So even in, and that's within a, a, a very high carb, you know, fueled uh, environment, like they're, mm-hmm. they're typically catering to that. But I would just say that, um, any amount of cleaning up your diet and decreasing the glycemic load is going to just compound that need for sure. Yeah. Because when we have a base level, if you're eating a higher carb diet, your, your insulin levels tend to be a bit higher and we tend to retain sodium better. So we retain that fluid balance a little bit better, but, um, and for some people that's great. Other people that's, that's problematic. And so if you eat on the lower carb side of things, then we tend to lose sodium more easily. And so you have to supplement it to be able to stay ahead of that whole process. Okay. So to kind of dumb it down, then I, I think the way it is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but because glycogen holds water, the water holds sodium, and there's also aldosterone in there. And when you're on a lower carb diet, you're mostly depleted because you're not getting a frequent feeding of carbohydrates, which replenish your glycogen stores. So that's why you need the sodium to, um, because you're losing more sodium through your urine because it's not being held in water or glycogen, correct? For the most part. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I feel a little bit smarter now because I, 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 I like would learn about this. I'd forget it, learn about it, forget it, learn about it, forget it. But, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's all good stuff. So what does, um, seven to 10 grams kind of look like? Would that be seven to 10, 10 packets of the electrolytes or, you know, to the lay person, what does that look like? Yeah. So we we're not recommending that folks do seven to 10 packets. I mean, if you do, that's fine, but ideally we're trying to get people to eat salt rich foods in, in these scenarios. So like 10 olives has a gram of sodium, a thousand milligrams of sodium. Uh Okay. Um, two ounces of good quality salami has a gram of sodium. You know, I mean, there's some, some good quality foods that are also pretty salt rich. Uh, 
you know, like uh, uh, smoked almonds that are salted, like you can get a really good, good whack of sodium from, from that as well. Uh, so, you know, just measurement wise, one teaspoon of, of uh, table salt is about a gram of sodium. It's not perfect, but it, 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 it's right in the neighborhood. So that's what we're talking about from, from like just a volumetric perspective. And then from just different, different food perspective, there's a lot of different foods that are, are good for you. You know, like pickles are, are rich in sodium. Pickle juice is super rich in sodium. It's kind of hard to gauge exactly how much you get with that, but it's, it's a guarantee it's quite high in sodium. So um, those are all good, good options to fill in that, that stuff. So we'd like to see as much of the sodium, potassium, magnesium obtained from diet as possible. But then oftentimes people find themselves in a scenario where they need to supplement it. And that's where something like Element or doing our keto aid, we still have that free downloadable guide online for people to do that. Okay. Um, I, I've always been kind of curious about the ancestral health perspective of this. And that kind of gets thrown around a lot. And I definitely want to hit on that too. But uh, to kind of, I guess, get us going down this rabbit hole. Um, do you think the reason why our bodies are you know, perform better on a higher sodium, you know, intake is because we would have eaten more meat that was fresher, which would have more blood, which would have more sodium in it. And, you know, now most of the meat that we get is typically, you know, dry aged or something like that. And that's why we're not getting as much salt. I know that that's, that's pretty abstract. Almost, no, no, no. And it's I, pretty I, far I back. I, I think, honestly, I think point number one is that, um, paleo man didn't have one of these with him or her all the time, <laughs> yeah. you know, coffee, tea, water, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think just the volume of fluid we drink is kind of discordant with what, what is, is healthier for us. Like we wouldn't necessarily need to supplement as much sodium as we do if we didn't drink as much beverage as we do, I think is a baseline. Okay, there, yeah. there is this reality though, that if you look at the sodium distribution in most mammals, there's about two, two grams of sodium per kilogram of mammal stuff. You know, it's like hair and skin and nails and the, the, the whole deal. And it's not equally distributed. There's more in the bones and it, it's sometimes in the skin and nails than, the, than there is within the muscle and whatnot but it's fairly uniformly distributed. And what we find due to the uh, modern butchering practices, when an animal is killed, it's bled. And so there is higher concentrations of sodium extracellular than there is intracellular. So in, in the, the blood and the plasma, there's higher sodium concentrations. When an organism dies, one of the things that occurs is that the sodium goes into the cells and the potassium goes out of the cells. And this is actually part of the, the beginning of the breakdown process. And we want some of this stuff to occur in like aged meat and stuff like that. But you could make the case that most meat products would have been at least double in the amount of sodium that we, we get in an average kilogram of, of meat provides about a gram of sodium. So, you know, so you, you could easily double that there, but that's still quite a ways off of what, you know, we're, we're talking about with this kind of modern intake. And I think another piece to that is, um, you know, if we really want to get kind of paleo reenactment, our forebears were very active, but they weren't professional athletes. Like they weren't doing jujitsu five days a week and two hours of, of doing that. Um, they were, they were pretty smart about the timing of, 
doing hunting and gathering. Um, although humans are great at endurance running compared to other animals, particularly in the heat, you didn't do that every day. You know, it's mm -hmm. like you might do it a day, you have success and then you rest it a lot, you know? And so I just think that some of the, you know, some of the need for additional sodium is reflected in our modern lifestyle. Like I think we, for the people who exercise, they typically exercise more than what most hunter gatherers, even contemporarily right. studied do, you know, right. Yeah. Your circumstances average, it, the, yeah. Your average paleo yeah. guy probably wasn't hammering out a 500 pound deadlift every single day and then squat 300 pounds. His, his activity was more so I'm chasing this down and it's not a long drawn out process. It's a short period of, you know, a lot of exertion and then rest, eat, recover, and then, you know, walk for a while. Nothing like it looks today, or at least right. that's how I kind of see it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's, it, we also know that within Neolithic times, um, salt was a, a super early traded, commodity, like the term salt comes from salary, which is the way the Roman army was paid in, right. in salt. And it's probably not like we do know that in Paleolithic times, there were different trade economies that occurred around bone and shells and different things. And it's hard to imagine that there wasn't, you know, at least in different areas, some type of an economy trading salt. I mean, we didn't have pottery, so the container would have probably been some sort of like a leather bag type deal. So it'd be hard to find that stuff. But I mean, it's fungible and easily distributable and all that type of stuff. So I mean, it, it uh, and then there's some part of, you know, the human evolution theory that uh, the aquatic ape theory, which is that humans generally moved near, uh, around um, the world first via the coastline. So we would have had access to salt and salty foods you know, pretty ubiquitously and then, you know, entering more inland after that, but there's salt licks and, and salt flats in a, a number of areas. So I do think that there are places where that could get plugged in, you know, trade within people could have supplemented that. But then I, I, I think the more, you know, stronger things to stand on are, are just, we didn't, we didn't have water bottles with us 24 seven and, you know, uh, 32 ounce cups of coffee and stuff like that to dilute the sodium that gets us into this low sodium environment to start off with. Yeah. Right. So does coffee actually, um, make you lose sodium? Cause I know it's like a, uh, I don't want to say a hot debated topic, but you hear from some people, yeah, it's a mild diuretic. You hear from some people, yeah, you lose a lot of sodium if you drink a lot of caffeine. What's the what's the you, nuance there? If if one is habituated to caffeine, it's not really a diuretic. And, oh, okay. and so it's not really a problem. And the main the main issue there either way is just that it uh, if we consume a large bolus of fluid without uh, electrolytes, or we didn't say like, if I ate a meal that was salami, pickles, and olives, and say like, I got three grams of sodium out of that, then I could sip on a lot of water to be able to reach an equilibrium with where my electrolytes should be relative to the, to the, um, the hydration. But if we're not doing that, then you, you know, you, you take this thing, it's like a 20 ounce container, and I just shoot that down, I'm going to dilute my, my sodium specifically, both, both the sodium and potassium kind of gets diluted, but sodium is the more concerning part. And so then the body needs to start using the kidneys to excrete fluid. And usually it excretes potassium in addition to the sodium going out. So you end up losing some of everything in the process of trying to get it back down to normal. Cause if we dilute 
it, it think about it like this. The two arguably most tightly regulated physiological processes are pH and electrolytes. If those things go up or down just a little bit, we get sick or, or potentially die. And so the body really works quite hard to make sure that both pH and electrolytes are, are very tightly controlled. Hmm. All right. Well, I guess kind of tailoring on to nutrition and, and uh, stuff like that. Um, do you, do you feel like there's a fine line between trying to optimize muscle protein synthesis versus longevity? Like, do you think you can have both to a fair degree without compromising one or the other? Because a lot of people talk about, well, you should eat multiple protein boluses a day. So that way you get the maximum amount of muscle protein synthesis throughout the day. And then, you know, there's also a lot of evidence around, okay, well, you might want to intermittent fast, you know, maybe eat like a bigger breakfast and then like an early dinner or maybe even a late lunch. So that way your gut is freed up when you're sleeping because you're able to sleep better on an empty stomach. And I, I know there's more science that I'm letting on here. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, do you feel like there's a way that we could do both? Because right now, the way that I'm doing things right now, um, I'm kind of reverse dieting, so I'm trying to add on as much lean mass as possible and build up my metabolism for probably about six months or so, right? Because I'm getting married next year in November, so I don't want to get super shredded right now and then have to maintain that and then eat 1,800 calories <laughs> into a wedding. To maintain, I, yeah. Right, yeah. right. I would rather right. put on a little bit of body fat right now, but also put on some muscle and then cut down for a little bit and then reverse back into the wedding. So that way my, my metabolism is a good place. So I, that's kind of a long way to ask. Do you feel like we can kind of turn these levers, get the best of both worlds? Or do you feel like you kind of have to choose one rabbit or the other to chase? No. Uh, so I'm, God, how do I want to tackle this? Uh, right before COVID nuked, the world. I, I had this talk that I only got to do uh, publicly once, and it was at the Metabolic Health Summit, and the title is Longevity, Are We Trying Too Hard? And in that, I dig into things like mTOR, intermittent fasting, calorie restriction, and uh, I wrote my first published article on intermittent fasting in 2005 I by 2006. <laughs> I, I, I deeply regretted releasing that article. Like it was just a fucking shit show. You know, um, it mainly went out to the CrossFit scene. These CrossFit folks are already so type A and over the top. And, you know, um, it was just burning people out. It was accentuating the burnout. Uh, uh, people that were only e eating you know, five grams of carbs a month were, were eating in a 22 hour compressed window. And it's like, oh my God, like this maybe, you know, 16 hour fast would probably be good for a, a computer programmer who walks and maybe lifts weights once in a while, but a, a twice a day training CrossFit games person is like, this is an absolute, you know, disaster. And so that really started, what I noticed was that it was at best a coin toss, whether or not intermittent fasting helped people. Some people, they were just like, you know, I noticed that I can just go longer without meals and I don't have to be neurotic about like the six meals a day. Like I don't lose some muscle mass. If I skip a meal or two meals, then I make it up later and it's no big deal. Like it, it, it's not like I go into negative nitrogen balance immediately and, and there's this problem. So the biggest upside that I found was that it seemed to streamline some people's lives but literally 50% of people, it seemed to contribute to tanking their hormones, uh, a retrograde performance, loss of muscle mass, and all that type of stuff. So I started, 
I would, I don't know if I it took a more critical, you know, look at it, but I, I think it, it fostered that. And I started asking some deeper questions, you know, like, so does calorie restriction work in an organism that is fed a species appropriate diet? And there's a, a great paper, uh, uh, calorie restriction does not extend lifespan in all organisms and is unlikely to do so in humans is the, the, the title. And it gets in and it looks, there's not a ton of studies, but you know, like mice and rats are, are cited oftentimes as these study animals where they, they feed them 40% less than they, they would eat ad libitum, you know, that they would eat on their own. And the animal lives longer and has lower rates of cancer and cardiovascular disease and all this stuff. And it's really impressive until you look at what happens with calorie restriction when you feed mice a species appropriate diet, like actually instead of feeding them, like, so the lab chow diet is basically sugar, whey protein, um, vegetable oils, vitamins, minerals, and binders to make these pellets to stick together. And the reason why scientists do this is you can, in that circumstance, know exactly how much and what types of food an animal is eating. If it's in a box and you weigh out that much of the food and the, you know, you know, the, the error bars of, of, you know, the way the food is manufactured and you put the food in and then you take the leftovers out, like you've got a really good sense of how much you're eating. So it's great for that, but you're feeding these animals junk food, like super shitty junk food. And it's well understood that it's almost impossible to feed these animals in a way that doesn't cause disease. Like you have to mildly calorie restrict them to just not make them obese for the most part. So what I, what's been missing in this whole, so when they fed these animals, a, a species appropriate diet and calorie restricted them, it shortened their lifespan. It didn't increase it. When they just fed these animals, a species appropriate diet in a lab setting, they had almost as much increase in longevity as what they did with calorie restriction, but without all, all the gnarly side effects and everything. So people are really geeked out about like suppressing mTOR and all these, you know, supposed benefits around fasting, but they're always comparing this to people or organisms that are sick, overweight, and metabolically broken. Like, of course, if you're eating too much of a shitty diet, eating less of it is going to be better. Like it, yeah. it, it's... This should be obvious, but it actually took me a long time to arrive at that. The question here needs to be, what does the longevity, the health span and the lifespan of an organism look like if it is lean, active, strong, and metabolically healthy? And then how does that compare to intermittent fasting, calorie restriction, and all the rest of this stuff? And I think that you're going to have nothing sauce there. Like, I think it's, it's going to be absolute bollocks from, from that point. And I think circling back around to your, your question on this stuff, I think that there's an optimization kind of occurs where if you want to be an amateur bodybuilder, you have to eat and train in a way that maybe starts getting antagonistic towards ultimate longevity, like a, a Dave Draper, a, you know, pretty famous uh, old school bodybuilder. He just just died recently. I think he was in his late seventies, which isn't bad, but you know, these, these bodybuilders that achieved really remarkable size and maintained a fair amount of that throughout their life. They don't have like stunningly impressive lifespans, you know, Larry Scott, Dave Draper, um, some of these folks, like they live a, a pretty darn good life. And, and the interesting thing is they have a good health span. They tend right. to be very, very healthy, very, very healthy, then die. That's they don't key. have like a, which yeah. is pretty, pretty important. 
So they don't have much loss in their health span, but they don't have a, a particularly impressive like total longevity. They're not getting into their 90s or not getting to 100 and stuff like that. But I do think that there's kind of a trade-off there. But I think that somebody that eats two meals a day, two meals and a snack, or maybe something crazy, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and they get to where they've got a double body weight back squat, a body weight and a half, uh, or a double body weight deadlift, body weight and a half back squat, body weight and a quarter bench press, and then all the other stuff kind of somewhat in synergy there. You're going to have an impressive physique, like the person will carry decent muscle. And I think that the strength and power and, and mobility of something like that could be easily maintained for a very long time. And it will take a couple of years for somebody to get to that spot. But then that's very maintainable. And it's like, unless you're doing power athletics, like rugby or American football or shot put or something, you don't need more than that. If you want more than that, that's great. But you don't really need more strength or power than that. I do old guy jujitsu and like, I, I never, ever, ever lose due to a strength deficit. And that's even rolling against people that are 60, 70, 80 pounds heavier than me. There are plenty of people that are much stronger than I am, but I don't lose because of a lack of strength. I lose due to a lack of technique or maybe a gas or, mm. or something like that. But you know, the strength that I have is plenty for doing the things that I do. And I think I'll be able to maintain the bulk of what I've got for a very long time. You know, I'll turn 50 in January. And I, I think I could probably have about the levels that I've got now when I'm 70 you know, so that that's, that's not a bad trade-off. Whereas I think if I, I'm about, I'm five, nine, about 170 pounds. If I was trying to be 190, 195 pounds, I think I would need to do things that might start getting antagonistic towards that ultimate, you know, kind of, kind of longevity piece. Although it might be somewhat synergistic with Hellspan, you know, similar to like mm -hmm. a Dave Draper or something like that. Yeah, um, I've been listening to a lot of that uh, Derek more plates more dates and he brings up a lot of good points and one of the points that he brings up with people who are bodybuilders is that what nobody thinks about is just you're just a large human and you have to imagine every night when you go to sleep, going back to more of an ancestral standpoint, you know, our ancestors didn't have that much muscle mass. And when they laid down to go to sleep, you know, their neck wasn't enormous. So it didn't collapse right. their airway. And it sounds so like simple, but it's true. When you're overweight or you're just insanely muscular, you're just a bigger person. And to maintain that lean mass, you have to continually shovel down calories. You, mm -hmm. you know, it's not going to always be perfect for uh, longevity. Um, another piece that you touched on once, and I love the way that you put this, is that some keto and carnivore people, um, due to mTOR, which is the mammalian target of rapamycin, because um, that term gets thrown out there a lot, and I don't think people always pick up on what it is. Um, it's uh, They get terrified of protein, even though someone like Dr. Gabrielle Line, who I think is like the best person who talks about protein because she talks about the satiety effect. She talks about, you know, how important it is to maintain muscle into an older age. Um, these V or uh, carnivores are starting to look like vegans or keto people are starting to look like vegans. Keto, they're, yeah. Right. Yeah. They're terrified of protein <clears throat> because they think, oh, well, you know, it's going to spike my insulin and then, you know, I I'm going to stop burning fat, but it's like, okay, well, what's going to drive your ability to maintain muscle or grow if that's your goal, if you're so scared of protein, like it, there's trade-offs and I'm sure that, you know, okay, maybe you could find studies that would say lower protein diets may produce a little bit more longevity. I don't know, but to me, 
I'd rather look better, perform better, and not have to worry about sarcopenia to the same degree if you could just eat a little bit more protein. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, really the trade-off that I, I think folks miss in that is um, the, the supposition here is that decreasing protein will modulate the frequency of mTOR activation and that this is going to decrease our likelihood of cancer primarily, but also like some thrombic diseases and stuff like that. Again, what they're comparing that against, though, is an over chronically overfed state versus like a protein deficient state. Mm-hmm. How about a protein adequate state with exercise and metabolic health? Like they're not fucking doing, this. you know, they're not <laughs> they're, doing that. No one wants to go the middle of the road. Well, let, let's kind of find somewhat optimized health and then mm-hmm. compare, you know, higher and lower protein there. And, and it's, it's a, maybe these folks are right. Maybe they're right in that it's going to modulate your chance of cancer, but by how much, like we really don't know all of our, our risk profile for cancer or type two diabetes, all these things. It's, it's a non, it, it's a number probably less than one, you know, it, in, whereas all of us with the topic of sarcopenia, it's a one, we have a 100% risk of sarcopenia as we age. We will lose muscle. We will lose the uh, type 2B motor units that produce the power that is uh, so important for like glucose disposal and and all that type of stuff. That's a guarantee. And the way that we hedge against that, this is one of the things that's really interesting to me on the longevity research. On the front end of this, everybody's worried about mTOR and overfeeding. And I think overfeeding is a legitimate problem. Being overfed is a problem. But when we really look at aging populations that age well, they eat a lot of protein. The people who eat more protein age better. So it's like, so during our middle years, we're just supposed to protein starve ourselves and then lose all the muscle mass. And then at the point of our our life cycle, when it's the most difficult proposition to gain muscle, now we start ram. It it just doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like, find something that you enjoy doing. And, and hopefully that means some time in the gym, but even if you don't like being in the gym, like a full body, you know, press, pull, hinge squat, you know, circuit training thing twice a week, you could get in and out of that in 20 minutes a shot and it could all be selectorized machines. God, that's going to give you so much benefit, you know, and then eat, eat two meals and a snack, you know, and make sure it's protein centric and, Mm -hmm. I think that your body composition, your satiety, your metabolic health, and, and then this whole other thing, um, what if you fall down a hill? What if you fall off a ladder? What, you, you know, what if you get injured? Uh, you, you're harder to kill if you're stronger. You know, Absolutely, like your internal yeah. organs are protected. Your bones are protected. But if your muscles are stronger, your bones are stronger. It's all these other, you know, accidents are a, a major you know, problem for, for a uh, shortening life. Uh, once you hit 50 and beyond, don't get on a fucking ladder around your house, like <laughs> hire some young idiot yeah. to do all that stuff. You know, um, you would not believe the statistics on, on like n- middle-aged and older dudes falling off of ladders while trying to clean out like their rain gutters and stupid stuff like that, you know? So the, the injury prevention and, and, uh, uh ability to withstand, a traumatic event is a just such an important factor when we're trying to to divvy out risk assessment and, and risk mitigation in this story. Right, right, and I, I think that's a big nuance that a lot of people miss. 
And it, it is sad. And I've seen old people all the time that, you know, just it's like, God, you know, what could we have done to make the point to them? Like, hey, maybe you should do something to make you a little bit more mobile or like you said, harder to kill. Um, just something to make you a little bit more healthier because it's it's terrible to see some of these people who just don't look like they carry their own weight. They're brittle, yep. they're fragile. Like that's just, it's not good at all. Um, so we were all, you were talking about risk a little bit there as well. What are your thoughts around saturated fat and sugar? Because I had Ted Naiman on and him and I had a little bit of a back and forth about this. And I'm very interested in it because to me, it seems like sugar is only bad because it provides you no satiation and that's just extra calories you don't need. So it's easy to overconsume it and therefore, you know, all the problems that come with obesity because you're just not getting satisfied by those calories. Um, the saturated fat conversation, I, I just, there's so much data out there. Like, okay, people want to tell you, you look at saturated fat and your, your LDL cholesterol is going to skyrocket to 600. And you're going to die of a heart attack. Um, you got some other low carb people that tell you saturated fat doesn't matter. Um, and some people kind of say, well, saturated fat is the same kind of deal as sugar where it's, you know, empty calories that provide no satiation. But the way that I kind of look at saturated fat is that, okay, well, most foods with saturated fats, like if you're looking at whole foods like a ribeye steak or a lot of red meat pork going for the better stuff um i see that as a net positive because you're getting you know a lot of the nutrients that are in animal foods and only found in animal foods they provide the satiation for the protein so you're not going to eat as much and then you know the protein is going to help you to grow and maintain or build muscle so i feel like when people demonize saturated fat and they go out of their way to demonize red meat I feel like it's a harm just because people don't understand that like you got to look at the big picture and i feel like if you just say the saturated fat's bad and avoid saturated fat at all costs you're doing more harm than good now i know mm -hmm. a lot of i threw a lot at you but uh i guess let's start with the uh sugar what's uh your opinion on the big picture with sugar first yeah i, I mean i i think that we're gonna end up being like in in almost like goose stepping synchrony on on all of this uh, you oh, know nice. based off cool. of what you were you were talking about, um, you know, when we do, when we look at metabolic ward studies of sugar consumption, where people are basically locked in a hospital room, just a step above prison, like, <laughs> you know, and, and we know exactly what they're eating, their pee is collected, their poo is collected, like, we know the ins, the outs. In that circumstance, then yeah, sugar is not that big of a nutrient of, of concern, because people are not being allowed to overeat, like if they're fed an isocaloric thing. And the more evidence-based nutrition folks will trot this out and see, say, sugar is not a big deal. Just weigh and measure your food. And it's like, well, okay, you know, go to any Walmart at, at 11 o'clock at night and, and look around and see how well that is working as kind of a public health message. Especially after a few element tequilas, right? <laughs> yeah, especially, <laughs> you know. Um, so that that's great in a metabolic ward setting. It's mm. wonderful for the people who are neurotic enough to have the discipline to do a physique competitor's diet and lifestyle that will work. It, it, it's very difficult to work for virtually everybody else. And, and I, I cringe at even saying that, but it, it's, um, you know, the, the liquid sugar is maybe one of the things that I would push back on the most. It is okay. so quick acting. It is so fast to, to overwhelm our satiety centers. And it does legitimately, it hits the liver so quickly 
that you begin converting glucose into fructose in the liver, which leads into non-alcoholic fatty liver. So that might be the one okay. spot that I would push back and be like, uh, actually liquid sugar is going to get you into some, some dangerous ground, uh, even on an isocaloric consumption. If you were to spoon it down, it might affect differently than if you drink it down. And this is some sure. of, uh, 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 Dr. Lustig's work. And it, it's pretty robust. Like they're, they're, you know, they're mm -hmm. animal models, but it's been extrapolated to humans and like they're able to look at the liver physiology. And I think something very bad, rate limiting steps are really important. So if I have a log and I set it on fire, that will be a nice source of, of heat over a, a period of time. If I pulverize that in a sawmill and turn it into a super fine powder, and I spin it in a room and get it aerosolized and then a spark that will explode. You know, I can have all of that thing burn instantly as if yeah. it, it was, you know, an air fuel gas mixture and it, it'll explode. So the rates of these things become pretty important too. And when you, we drink calories, whether it's buttered coffee or sugar, you know, <laughs> I, I think that we end up with some problems. So yeah, I, I think we agree pretty much on the sugar and, and you know, one of okay. the main uh, dietary interventions. I'm like, just don't do liquid calories. Don't do juice. If you have a cocktail, do use, a, a, you know, um, diet Coke instead of re regular Coke. Like there's just some really simple things that can be done to, to fix that stuff. On the saturated fat front, I, I think it is still kind of complex. Like what type of fat are we talking about? Butter, interestingly, seems to raise lipoproteins in a lot of people. Lipoproteins are the, the molecules that carry cholesterol through the body, and it seems to raise the LDL lipoproteins and cholesterol disproportionately to others. But not everybody does this. Not everybody who does the buttered coffee or eats tons of butter sees a lipoprotein increase. So that's kind of a weird thing. Um, some things like palm oil don't seem to raise lipoproteins at all in, in anybody. A stearic acid which is a main saturated fat in both beef and chocolate, doesn't seem to raise uh, cholesterol levels in much of anybody. But then uh, 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 palmitate by itself, which is another, it, it, it's one of the main constituents in palm oil. But if you eat palmitate separately from other foods, it does seem to raise lipoproteins in some people. So that's a really interesting mix. And then there's this question, there are folks that are very much on the uh, the, cholesterol it, it, or lipoproteins and cholesterol is the primary driver of cardiovascular disease. Other people have kind of in this uh, vascular endothelial damage model that um, if the endothelium gets damaged, so like we only accumulate atherosclerotic plaques in the arteries of our circulatory system. We never accumulate it in the veins. So there's something about blood pressure and the, the non-laminar flow and whatnot that occurs in there that, that seems to be a a factor, but these are kind of two worlds, but it, it, I think it, one thing is worth saying, like a person who has quote high cholesterol, who is diabetic and dis, you know, uh, uh, disordered blood glucose levels and high inflammation and all these other things, they have a probably significantly higher risk profile than somebody who is eating a ketogenic diet, who has low inflammation, low blood sugar levels, but the same cholesterol and lipoprotein. Now, the thing that gets tricky is that there are folks in the low carb world that will say they have zero cardiovascular disease risk because their insulin level is low. I wish that were true. 
I hope that's true, but I don't think it's going to end up being true. I still think that some of those people would do well from either the uh, shuffling of um, some of the saturated fat into monounsaturated fat, so more like olives and nuts and uh, uh, olive oil and stuff like that. Maybe the reintroduction of 50 to 75 grams of carbohydrate a day, like we've seen cholesterol levels get cut in half in people who start eating 50 to 75 grams of carbs from good sources and then just shift their their uh, fat sources around a little bit. Um, uh, 15 years ago, I thought I had all this stuff completely figured out and every single day that goes on, um, I feel like I understand lipidology less and less. Like I, I think it just becomes very granular and very specific to the individual. And we have some kind of broad brushstroke stories. Like again, somebody who is generally metabolically healthy is going to be better under any, virtually any circumstance relative right. to somebody who's not generally metabolically healthy. But then from there, like, I, I think it, it's, um, it's hard to say, well, because you eat low carb, your cardiovascular risk profile is zero, you know, if you have high cholesterol levels and whatnot. Right. Um, now I've heard people talk about the, I think it's the Mendelian randomizations. Mm -hmm. I can't recall what exactly that is, but the argument I've heard about the LDL levels is that they say, when you take the Mendelian randomization um, factor or whatever the heck it is, I think it has something to do with like twins or people from the mm -hmm. same family. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of similar genetics and they find that the people who have higher LDL tend to have higher heart attacks. So I was originally on the train of, oh, well, you know, cholesterol doesn't really matter. And then as I began to hear more and more of that, I was like, okay, well, maybe that does play a factor, but, you know, it, it still seems like the lipidology stuff, every time I've tried to approach it, like, kind of like you said, it's like, there is so much to this. There's so many different levers and, you know, what about this? What about that? Like, there's so many factors that go into yep. it to just kind of myopically blame it on LDL just seems too, like, it's not conclusive enough, but uh, once again, I don't know anything about that stuff. Yeah. It, you know, a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Bill Cromwell is a, a lipidologist and, and, uh, he, he'd be a great guy for the show. Like he's just good, good interview and, and, sure. uh, solid dude. And one of, one of the things that has changed my mind on this, and I forget the exact studies, he always has the studies right off the top of his head, but they have sliced people into different groups where you've got elevated lipoproteins, insulin resistant, elevated lipoproteins, insulin sensitive. And although again, the risk profile is lesser in the insulin sensitive group, it is not non-zero. It is non-zero, you know? And so you are still experiencing a risk profile there. Now, again, people will say, well, there's some other like vascular endothelial damage that's occurring, whether it's high blood pressure, it's this or that. I don't know, like my, my lipoproteins have tended to run a little on the higher side. I can, I can tweak that by eating a little bit more carbs and shifting around to more monounsaturated fats and then they look great. So, but I would like it to look different because I would love to eat, you know, sticks of butter in my coffee because it's convenient <laughs> and it tastes good and all that, that type of stuff. But yeah. Bill paints a pretty compelling picture around the notion that, um, he delineates the nuance, but he doesn't give the real low carb jihadis what they want, which is this <laughs> out that so long as you never eat yeah. something above uh, an asparagus that you're, you're never going to have a 
heart attack or a stroke because you're, you're, you're never going to experience cardiovascular disease. And he is not in that, that camp and he will administer some very low dose statins, but he, here's an interesting thing. He will, a normal dose of Crestor is 25 to 30 milligrams per day. And, and that's considered a low end dose for, for a statin bill will have people do five milligrams of Crestor Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And because they're eating, uh, these are in low carb people who have low inflammation, good glycemic control, and he just gives them a lick of a statin and their, their lipoproteins drop by 30 or 40%. Like it drops more than what you think it would do. It drops more with a dose that isn't even supposed to be therapeutic. So this isn't some guy that's just like, oh, you know, he loves paleo. He loves keto. He loves all that stuff. Um, His daughter had really severe uh, ulcerative colitis, which she ended up fixing with my book. And so like he, he loves me, like he really likes me, Uh, but he's the dude. So he, uh, he's a PhD in um, uh, physical chemistry. Basically he's a physicist who studied chemistry, who then went to medical school. And got into lipidology. Yeah, it's so kind of just, funny. It seems like a lot of like engineers and people like yes. that. I had Brian Sanders from Food Lies on. Ted Naiman was a uh, engineer. Yeah. You know, all yeah. these guys come from different fields and they go to nutrition. And I, I was listening to a different interview with you, but you brought up the point that like a lot of people from different fields, they don't necessarily have a dog in this nutrition fight initially. Right. So I get annoyed when I see people say, oh, stay in your lane. Like, dude, I fix cars, right? But you see the guitars behind me. Right. Um, I, I could deadlift 500 pounds. Uh, like clearly I'm doing something right. So are there more knowledgeable people than me? Yes. But that doesn't mean that my opinion means nothing. And that all the research that I've done on the topics, speaking to people like you, um, Philip Avedia, who's a cardiothoracic surgeon, um, I get educated on these things because I care and it's interesting. So, you know, sometimes people who don't necessarily have a dog in this fight, can bring some outside perspective because they don't have that myopic view or that bias kind of already built in. Just about this maybe jumps the shark a little bit, or maybe it's self-serving, but in my experience, the stay in your lane crowd is just about universally statists. Like they are about the state. They're all about polishing the knob of, of, yeah. uh, you know, credentialing and all this stuff. And appealing I mean, to authority. Yeah. Yeah. The, the appeal to authority. And, and there's an interesting mix w- within that, you know, if, if I, so I had LASIK surgery a number of years ago, it was 15 years ago. And, um, I want a qualified surgeon who's board certified, you know, all this stuff. And then what I wanted was to read all the reviews from all the thousands of people that he's worked with, because this is a market-based, you know, things like Yelp were, were painful for it. They're both good and bad. You know, like mm-hmm. if the customer was a dick and they just didn't like the proprietors of a restaurant, then they could burn the thing down. It kind of sucked, Absolutely. but they were good. And that you could have these really honest reviews of somebody like a, like an eye surgeon, you know? And so I found this guy that had done a zillion of these surgeries and the re- results were just uniformly fantastic. And he had awesome bedside manner. And so I, I went with this guy. So this is a combination of both some, I wouldn't even call it, it's more, um, it's trade credentialing. It's like becoming a blacksmith and interning as a, a blacksmith. Like the way we could do, we do medicine could be done like the, the, you know, the, uh, 
middle ages trades, really, mm-hmm. when you get right down to it, like kids at 13 could enter into medical professions and engineering, like the way we do this stuff is absolutely ridiculously inefficient. And then you could get, so you get phenomenal training and yeah. vetting, you know, if you, if you want to learn how to make bridges, then you, you got, there's mm-hmm. certain, you, you use triangles and, and rebar, you don't use balsa wood and, and, you know, other, other weird shapes and stuff like that. But then you get a market feedback on it. You know, it's like, okay, well, they built these bridges and they fucking fell. Okay, well, don't go with those guys. Or, you know, the, this eye surgeon, you got all these reviews, they're five-star reviews. There's virtually no, um, you know, negative reviews. Then, it, you know, then we get this uh, interplay between credentialing and, and you know, that shows competence, hopefully. But this is an entirely different story versus... I have access to the same information that everybody else in the world has access to. I'm not trying to demonstrate that I can conduct eye surgery. I'm not trying to convince you that I can build a bridge over the Tacoma Narrow Straits. I'm just simply having a discussion around lipoproteins. And I used to be an electrical engineer by trade, but I've gotten in and started studying this. This is where these statist assholes, like, like they're stymieing innovation. And like, these are- uh, uh, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I could go on and on about that, but I, I, I um, I look so askance and down my nose uh-huh. at like the whole credentialing thing and and all that stuff. Like there were ways to get to that desired outcome that are very, very different than what these people are latched onto. What these people are latched onto is an an anachronistic process, and we could have way better, way faster, way cheaper if we had kind of like trade school applied to so many of these professions and then a market-based evaluation of the performance, you know, I mean, in a transparency, stick some blockchain in there so that you can't fuck mm-hmm. around with what the, you know, what the results are. And you've yeah. got a really amazing situation there. I think my entire listenership uh, ears perked up as soon as you started kind of going down that whole rabbit hole. That's what I'm all about though, is, um, you know, since if you have a free market in most things, these people are going to be insured, right? Because they don't they don't want to screw over their customers because you want people to come back, right? Um, you're not going to build a faulty bridge because if people die, then guess what? Nobody's going to want a bridge to be built by you. If you make a shitty cake, nobody's going to eat your cake. You're going to go out of business. Like the market has a way of regulating these things and nobody ever thinks about that. But that goes back to the point of just saying, oh, well, stay in your lane. Well, what if that person you just told stay in the lane, you know, this sounds so outlandish, but had the cure to cancer in their mind. Like they were thinking about it. They're on the right path. And you just told that person to stay in their lane. And just because, you know, they're a grease monkey like me who fixes cars for a living, you know, they could do so many great things, but people who do shit like that, it's like, you have no idea what that person could do. One of the smartest people I've ever met with biochemistry and metabolism his, he, he's never, to my knowledge, I don't think he's ever done a day of formal education on those topics. He is a successful HVAC business owner. And <laughs> he just got, because his son had type one diabetes, he got in and learned everything he could about this. And, and the guy's like a 190 IQ who went into business and has a successful business and, and he has a near photographic memory. And I feel like I'm pretty good at this stuff. This guy, Mike Julian, he could tie me in knots with the details of, of biochemistry and metabolism and he has no credentials in it and he's far, far better at it than I am. And this is the stuff that just chaps my ass because when you look at the, the, um, 
non-linearity of, of uh, outstanding performers, like a Michael Jordan to the rest of basketball. It's kind of like, did anybody else even really show up, you know, when people are at kind of their apex. And so you have people that maybe aren't formally trained, but again, we, we live in a time where even with YouTube and, and stuff like that, it, it, you know, people figure out how to lay tile and do even a lot of the trades now, I think that there's a huge benefit to having somebody looking over your shoulder doing a lot of this right. stuff because you'll fuck up a lot and they can they can save you from it. But if you just have access to good information and you can tinker and iterate and experiment and then you can demonstrate, show your homework, we're good. You know, we're, we're, we're pretty good on that. And to dismiss somebody, be like for somebody, I've seen a couple of people last Mike, they're like, well, what's your background? You know, because he'll be talking with a, a PhD or a doctor about this stuff. And he's like, oh, I have an HVAC company. And they're like, well, you know, beat it, piss boy. You know, and it's yeah. like, this guy could teach you this stuff. You know, it's, I wouldn't want Mike removing my appendix. If, if push came to shove, I would right. want a physician who has gone through that process, but, mm -hmm. you know, talking metabolism and integrated fuel metabolism and stuff like that, like you, you're going to be hard pressed to find very many people better at it than this guy. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's just, it's sad because I've seen a lot of people in the nutrition space get upset when outsiders come in or, you know, people in the nutrition space kind of go outwards and they say, oh, well, stay in your lane. You know, this isn't your thing. You, you know, I have a PhD in this, so I know what I'm talking about. Well, it's just because you have a PhD and just because you spent time specializing in this doesn't, you know, not everybody's experience is the same. It sounds so cliche, but it's true. Because, you know, some people are able to pick up a guitar right behind me, right? Someone could pick that up and be damn near virtuoso in a couple months. I'm not the best guitar player in the world, but I've been playing for about 15, 16, 17 years, somewhere around there. I don't even know how long at this point, but, you know, I've been playing for a long time, so I got good at it, right? So when you tell somebody who could pick up that talent, stay in their lane. Like I said, I, I just don't like this idea of discouraging people unnecessarily. Now, like you said, obviously you're not going to hire a mechanic to go lob your arm off and sew it back on, but you know, this person may know a thing or two that may steer you in the right direction. So kind of getting onto this, um, that we're talking about people who become experts in certain subjects. Um, or do you still have a little bit of time? Yeah. Yep. All right, cool. Yep. Well, I just want to make sure I don't want to keep you too, too long. You've been very generous with your time and I really appreciate it. Um, everybody in the world has an opinion on COVID. Um, and I really like your take on it. And I never really heard you talk kind of, I don't want to say libertarianism, but with a concern necessarily for freedom until this last year. But I feel like at this point, we've all been kind of thrust into it because how big our government is and even like sometimes i've heard you talk about the uh, housing uh, crash and your economics seem to be on point and um as a libertarian i'm a big fan of the austrian school economics the way you were talking about some things it kind of sounded like you had little inklings of that as well um these last two years have changed the world definitely the united states at least for i don't want to say strictly the worst but kind of the worst um, what have the last two years essentially been like for you? And, you know, what are some of your thoughts? And we can kind of go down this rabbit hole. So kind of curious on your thoughts. And like I said, we'll take it from there. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you asking. So it, it's interesting for me personally, 
COVID's been great. Uh, I've had multiple, I had early stage uh, investments that uh, were acquired because they saw ridiculous growth during COVID. I just got lucky that I was in different spaces that, that were amenable to uh, growth due to online purchasing. And, and I had a couple of different investments that have already um, been acquired. Um, my businesses personally have benefited enormously. Like I have an online health platform called the Healthy Rebellion, which between the toxicity of social media and just the general, you know, uh, you know, the way the wind is blowing with everything, people need a place that they can go and just vent, like do much like what we're doing here. Just like, hey, does this sound crazy? And then have some people say, yeah, man, I think that that's a little much. And other people say, well, I don't know if you're really even crazy enough, you know, and have a fucking discussion about <laughs> yeah. it. You know, um, I homeschool. I, I, I lived in Texas and Montana. And so both the states have been open. I've been doing jujitsu. I had COVID myself in uh, November of last year, and I had uh, two days that really sucked. Um, coffee still doesn't taste the same for me, so I, I, that is my my long COVID story. But uh, I'm metabolically healthy. At, oh, and we're pretty sure I caught COVID from my dog, which is a topic for a, an entirely different day. But um, <laughs> uh, personally, it's been great. I should be super excited about COVID, COVID mandates and everything about it, because even everything still that I have going on would benefit more from, from more stringent COVID stuff than not. And I'm also completely horrified by where this stuff has gone. Uh, it, when 9-11 happened and we started going into Iraq, I had some really big concerns. When we started rolling out the Patriot Act, I, I was apoplectic over it because I'm like, this is the, the end of the Fourth Amendment as we know it. And a bunch of people told me to shut up, that I was a left-wing pinko, I'm un-American and all the rest of it. And I was right about that. Like, it was absolute hogwash. And, and you know, we, we set into play an, an encroachment into our personal liberties by the state that is never going to get walked back and has been prepared to be weaponized in this situation too. Absolutely, you know, like the yeah. uh, uh, people speaking out at school board meetings and, and being called domestic terrorists mm -hmm. and, and the, you know, the threat of the Patriot Act being waved over them to shut them up. Um, so, I mean, in broad brush, you know, I think it's an absolute disaster. And if this stuff had been by so they, they say never attribute to malice what can be explained via, you know, incompetence. Incompetence would have at least, here's a win, here's a loss. Here's a win, here's a loss. It would have ended up a wash. It would have kind of been a wash. It's like, oh, they accidentally so, did some stuff right and they accidentally did some stuff wrong. That has not been the case here. There has been a uniform push in a very specific direction that seems to be vaccines, vaccine mandates, and most important to the mandate, like some sort of a digital tracking of all people that, that feeds into a social credit score and all the rest of that. And I just can't for the life of me figure out anything else other than that as the end game. Because it early, early on, I want to say that it was at the end of March 2020, I guess, you know, just as things are, are kind of ramping right. up. But when they said our, our, plan is you're going to hunker in place, wear masks, and we're going to get a vaccine. And this vaccine is in a class of viruses that we've never had a successful vaccine before. Like they tried to do vaccines for the SARS-CoV-1 
a, a virus and it was unsuccessful. It killed the animals that they, they, they did it in. Um, um, antibody dependent enhancement ended up being this huge problem there. So our only solution is vaccines. We're not looking at any off-label drugs. And, and at that point, it was early, like hydroxychloroquine was kind of kicked around a little bit. I don't think ivermectin was quite on the radar. Fluvoxamine was definitely not on the radar. But there was no centralized push for we're going to scan our database, you know, our, our pharmacopoeia of existing pharmaceuticals and see which of these may be important in prevention and treatment of, of this disease. There was nothing. That was super suspicious to me. The fact that we were only going to do a vaccine in a class of viruses that has never been done was super uh, suspicious. This was sold to us as an existential threat. Like this is a threat to civilization as we understand it. There haven't been a ton of examples of situations like this, but like the Manhattan Project is one that, that really popped into my head. You know, the, nearing the end of World War II, but the Germans are racing towards the development of an atomic bomb. The United States is, is doing everything they can to develop an atomic bomb. Whoever develops an atomic bomb first wins. Like it, it, it's, a, it's a done deal. And Philip yeah. K. Dick has a, a great alternate history, the man in the high castle, you know, that looks at what happens to the world if the, the actual Nazis get the atomic bomb first. And what they did within the Manhattan Project is they had all these brilliant physicists and engineers work together, but they were in different teams working on oftentimes competing ideas. There was one group that was going down a uran a, an enriched uranium track. There was another one that was looking at a plutonium track. There were considerations around the way that you blast this stuff together and, you know, the shape charge that would ram it together so that you could get a, a you know, a, a fission reaction and everything. Nobody knew if it was even possible to make an atomic bomb. Nobody knew if like uranium would work or plutonium would work. So we diversified our risk exposure by having multiple prongs going in different directions. That's what you do when you face an existential threat. That's actually what you do with you do basic fucking retirement planning. You don't put everything in the stock yeah. market. You put a little bit here and a little bit there. There was no diversification of risk in this thing at all. So right. the wealthiest, smartest country on the planet isn't going to diversify its risk exposure when tackling this existential threat. And that was like the point for me, it was maybe March 23rd of last year that I'm like, this is bullshit. And then it wasn't too long after that, that we started getting credible information out of China, which it's hard to say credible information and China at the same time, but it was crystal clear that the morbidity and mortality around COVID was extremely high with uh, metabolically sick individuals. People with multiple comorbidities, comorbidities uh, were the people that were getting sick and dying. And there was not a single public health message, take vitamin D, get in the sun, lose weight and, and, and you know, X, Y, Z. And so that was the further thing when, when public health messaging did not focus on agency of the individual to improve their life and improve their health, to improve something, then I knew that there was bullshit afoot. And I mean, it kind of goes on and on, but those are the big pieces, you know, a singular focus on a vaccine, not uh, diversifying our, our approach to dealing with it. Um, you know, that's not an existential threat. That seems like an opportunity to me that's being exploited at that point. Right. And it definitely was. Um, I've kind of looked at COVID as not the big killer, but it was more of a pin. So Trump, when he was running as a candidate, 
was spot on. He sounded like an Austrian economist because he would say the stock market's a bubble held up by low interest rates, right? So everybody can afford to, you know, buy back stocks super cheap. They can borrow money, same as cash, essentially, and then inflate their assets. So that's the only reason why they're able to keep their stock up as high as it is, right? Well, then we also had a public health bubble because everybody's obese, everybody's eating hyperpalatable foods that they can't put the fork down, so they get obese. Nobody wants to exercise. Um, student loans, um, people are buying houses they can't afford. The only reason why they can afford is because of low interest rates. And then COVID comes along, right? And that became the pin that popped the everything bubble. It took everything down to its knees where if we were a prosperous economy that had trade surpluses we had a populace that was productive enough to have savings or you had higher interest rates where people were encouraged to save then this would have been like a flip in the road right our country let's say 70 years ago right where you look at pictures nobody's obese um everybody had savings they could afford a rainy day uh things like that We'd have been able to weather the storm, no problem. You know, you look at some of the uh, Middle Eastern countries and they fared relatively well with it, but what do they have? They have savings. They have tight-knit family structures. They have good metabolic health. And we were looking over here like, oh, I wonder why they're doing so well. You know, we're all dying left and right. And not that they didn't see um, any morbidity or mortality from it, but they did. Um, it's like, just look at their example. Look at, they have a pretty well-structured society. Now, granted, their government's completely fucked up, but they got the family part right. They got the health part right. And funny enough, they eat a lot of meat over there. Um, and once again, just tight-knit families. Here, it's just not the same culture anymore. We're not the America that we once were. So when COVID came along, it was just, like I said, perfect thing to just take us out at the knees and really show how weak the underlying, you know, how weak just America is in general. And it, it saddens me to say that because we have the potential, we have the people, we have the technology to be the greatest nation in the world, but um, for politically expedient reasons to virtue signal about climate change, to, you know, keep interest rates low so that way you can borrow money cheap and buy back stock. And so you can fund wars and, you know, sell weapons from Lockheed Martin and General Arms, you know, whoever. Um, it, it's that, that's the reason why we can't have the U.S. that we once had. So it, it's it's just sad that we're not where we once were. And this should have been a blip under the radar because most people do just kind of get it, get over it. But because we're such an unhealthy nation that's so levered to the max with debt, um, this really took everyone back and it really kind of kicked everybody's ass, you know, more so the damage to the economy than even the sickness as sad as that is to say. Yeah. It, it's funny. Um, I, I've long said that virtually all of our problems could be traced back to going off the gold standard and, you know, entering oh the world my God. Fiat economy. <laughs> and it, yes. it's funny. I, I was on John Stossel's show a number of years ago, and I made this case around like the junk food industry basically was born out of that. And he's like, I, I don't agree with that. And like he and I have kept in contact a little bit over the years, but there was just a, there was just an article. It, it was a research piece that actually made the case that um, uh, fiat economy has made processed foods cheaper and real foods more expensive. And it kind of details how, this stuff has happened. And I pinged it to him. I'm like, see, I was right about this, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, that, that's been this big undoing. And if I put on a little bit of my, my tinfoil hat, 
and you look at Europe, the United States, even even uh, Japan, and uh, these debt-driven fiat economies, there there will be a, a a chickens coming home to roost at some point with that. The question mm-hmm. is, is it three minutes, three years, thirty years? Like we we don't know. It's lasted far longer right. than what I've I've thought before the the whole thing kind of kind of implodes and and melts down. But a really credible case to be made in all that stuff is if you got a big swath of the population on a universal basic income and everybody on some sort of nationalized uh, healthcare, if you collected as many of the guns and weapons as you could, then when all of this stuff pops, oh, and if, if you've got a, uh, if you've got a, you know, your passport to your health and shopping and food and medicine, and if your social credit score, music venues, know, yeah, it sucks. Which yours and mine would be a zero. Then you've got phenomenal control over people when all this stuff kind of goes sideways. And when, it, if and when it does go sideways, it's like, hey, uh, we're going to erase your debt, but you need to do this, that, and the other to be in, in good stead with all this stuff. And um, that sounds really crazy, but when you when you try to figure out what hypothesis really fits like why would you be pushing so hard like what is the end game that is desired to bring us like i i've seen some really interesting people vignay prasad who's a a brilliant physician historically very very left-leaning like he works in in you know the silicon valley medical system of the of the bay area he wrote a piece that was basically like the way that we're handling COVID is bringing us uh, really close to civil war. And, and he was no, no joke about it. And basically talking about how we've created a situation where an individual, whether left leaning or, or right leaning democratically elected president, we have another spicy flu season or something happens that person. Now we, we have the, uh, the template for locking society down stripping people of their rights and and uh, enacting a, a really powerful totalitarian endgame w- within all that. And that makes a lot of sense to me. It, it sounds kind of crazy. And I mean, lots of conspiracy, crazy theories can, can uh, make sense, but be entirely wrong. But when I go all the way from the economics to the social political stuff to mm-hmm. also like that scenario allows you know, via seniorage, like the people, if you're printing money like crazy, the people who are at the front of the line with that, they do pretty well. It's it's all the rest of us schmucks that it it really starts to suck. Um, That makes a lot of sense. It's also terrifying because it paints a picture of a pretty shitty future, at least a very tumultuous future, you know, that that we will have to navigate one way or the other. But uh, nothing else about this really makes sense except in that that kind of big end game deal and i i don't know that like this thing was like engineered i I, it it almost certainly seems to be released from a lab i don't believe that it was likely done intentionally but it's also i i know for a fact that you know there's all kinds of think tanks with all kinds of binders either printed or virtual and it's like how to capitalize on a pandemic, you know, how, how to, how, how to <laughs> turn lemons into, into lemonade when there's a terrorist yeah. attack, you know? And I mean, smart people get paid lots of money to sit down and war game stuff like this. And it's like, well, if this thing were to happen, how could we capitalize on this, you know? And, and that, that work has been done. Yeah. There, 
probably is a library that we'll never see of uh, people just kind of picking away. It says when shit hits the fan, when shit's going good, um, you know, how to make people compliant. There's there's definitely something to that. But, you know, it really does kind of amount to a two tiered caste system, essentially, with what they're pushing. And it's abhorrent because from my understanding, which could always be better is that these vaccines are just very, very mildly effective. Not to say that they're not effective at all. And this goes to the nuance. I know we were talking a little bit off the camera about this, but it, it seems like some people, they can legitimately benefit from the vaccine. So there's some people immunocompromised, elderly, obese, like, hey, it should still be your choice no matter what, but Probably should but probably the, the risk profile is favorable for the vaccine. Exactly, vaccine. exactly. Absolutely. Right. So yeah. my fiance and I had it last year, or no, I'm sorry, back in March, and I I literally felt like just a little under the weather for three days, and then woke up on the following Monday. I had no taste or smell. I, I drink dark roast coffee, so I took a sip of it, and I'm like, something's not right here, and I felt perfectly normal. Took a shower and I made some uh, that butcher box pork belly bacon. If you ever had mm -hmm. that, oh my god, it's fantastic! But it has like that pepper taste to it. Took a bite of it, I'm like, I can't fucking taste this. What the fuck? So I, I ate my whole breakfast, which was I think a, a New York strip, eggs and bacon. I'm like I didn't fucking taste a thing. So it, it might have been cardboard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I uh, I go upstairs and my fiance is getting up. I sit down on the bed and I said, I think I got COVID. <laughs> like I, I was surprised that I had it. Um, but my point in all that is it was so mild for me and we got our antibodies checked about two or three months later and I, we both want to do it again because it's literally a $10 test. Um, we had natural immunity and from what I understand, our antibody levels were higher than people who were vaccinated. So what is the purpose of us getting a vaccine now at this point? Because I'm 27, right? At the time I was 26, my fiance was 24. <laughs> why should we get vaccinated if we have natural immunity? So now we're immune. We can't spread it. Um, there's a paper that came out from the University of East Anglia, I think it was, out of Japan, that contact traced 10 million people, and they found less than, I think it was 120 people had spread COVID asymptomatically. So you don't spread it asymptomatically. Even the World Health Organization had came out and said that this doesn't spread asymptomatically. We did lockdowns, right? locked people in their homes to prevent the asymptomatic spread of COVID. And then they come out six months later and say, well, that doesn't happen. Um, why should we get an experimental vaccine? And look, I'm not anti-vax at all. If you want to get it, go get it. There's just zero case in my mind for me or my fiance to go get it because we both have, we have natural immunity. We got over it. We're fine. And if you're going to tell me kids have to get it, like kids don't spread it. They don't really get severe cases of COVID. I think in all the data I've seen from the CDC, I don't even think it's a hundred kids of the whole world died of COVID. And their risk profile is probably so that they might see more damage from getting a vaccine versus getting COVID, which if you give them the vaccine, they got the vaccine. You can't change that. You right. can't guarantee they're going to get COVID. So it's a long tirade, well, it, but it, 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 yeah. no, no. And I mean, that, that's a piece that I, I neglected to, to mention when I wouldn't, you know, when my 
hound dog ears started turning when, <laughs> kidding, when, yeah. when, when, when they said a vaccine only, uh, you know, we have to reach herd immunity with a vaccine. I'm like, well, what about naturally acquired immunity? Now, granted, I'll give them that at that point, we still didn't have great data on it, but there was absolutely no investigation into that. And there was no, mm-hmm. here's part of our multi-pronged plan. Like, even if they had wanted me to ultimately get the vaccine, yeah. Had they at least said, well, we're going to track people who have had the, va- the, the virus, and that's going to be heat maps so we can see where people have had it, and then we're going to target focus people who want the, the, the vaccine, you, you know, and then in aggregate, we're going to get this. You start ta- sounding scientific. You start sounding like you've got an actual game plan towards uh, remediating this thing, but when you completely ignore the potential impact of, of naturally acquired immunity and that this doesn't factor at all into herd immunity. And you're going to double down that it's like, no, you may have had it, but you need both shots. Oh, and now you need to be on the booster schedule too. And every single time that one experiences either, either a virus or a vaccine, there is a non-zero risk of complications, Except that with naturally acquired immunity, for most circumstances, unless we're talking about influenza, which has a super high mutation rate and it tends to change each year and it's got these natural uh, non-human hosts where you can get DNA recombination, you can get some really, uh, really nasty variants that pop up and everything is kind of a a different circumstance, but uh, there was no... um, mosaic of of options presented here it was a one and done and when i hear one and done stuff it makes me think high carb low fat it it makes me think modern modern monetary policy it's just kind (laughs) of like save it man no like this is a super complex world and you you don't you don't solve things like that it 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 doesn't have to be super complex but like you you need a a multi-pronged game plan at a minimum or at least be willing to do data collection and analyze and look like if they had wanted me to get the vaccine, they could have at least gone through some song and dance to act like they're doing the real thing. And they're like, we still think it might be good for you, Rob, to do this. And I would have been like, okay, you've done your diligence. And is it, I, I am libertarian leaning, but I'm, I'm not so libertarian that I'm, I, I don't understand that like, okay, I, I, I'm not fully into like the taxation of staff thing. It's like, functional roadways are nice. We'll get you there. We'll get shit, you there. You know, we'll get, some, get, get, yeah. some stuff like that. You know, it, it's, uh, I, I, I do, uh, yeah, I'm a little, little more middle, middle of the ground, I, I guess, yeah, there's that stuff, that. but yeah. yeah. So, but they didn't send anything like that. They didn't, they didn't tickle my giblets in any way that would get me to be like, I'm going to trust you guys. It's like, no, this is, this is like amateur. This is either amateur hour to a degree that is so I'm not an immunologist. I'm not a physician, but I laid it in my own head, laid out like so many better and more credible ways to tackle this. And then the, the immunologists and the doctors who pushed back against the way this has been handled said exactly the shit that I was saying. I'm like, okay, maybe, you know, I guess I'm not so crazy here, but that's where, again, it's like, okay, this isn't incompetence. Like, this is outright malfeasance here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's so disturbing to me that so many people kind of went along with it. But I, I've said this in multiple podcasts now, but I, I don't think there is a huge appetite for it at this point. And this is why I'm a huge optimist in 2022 and 2024. Um I really hope that there will be significant change. I, I'm 
strongly optimistic for it. And I don't think all of that's going to be correct. But, you know, when you tell people, hey, if you get double vaccinated, you're protected, you're good, throw away your mask, you're good. And then you start seeing breakthrough cases and then, you know, you do 180. Pull your mask out of the garbage. You got to wear it again. Yeah, and, right, yeah, right. Yeah. When you're talking out of both sides of your mouth, people don't trust you. Um, I had Spike Cohen, the VP on the um, Libertarian Party um, presidential nomination on my podcast. And he had told me about the reason why Israel and I think some other countries over in Europe have high vaccination rates because they were honest. They said, hey. This isn't going to stop the spread. This isn't going to stop you from getting it, but it may stop the severity. Take it if you want it. If not, you know, it's free. Just completely up to you. I think with that message, a lot of people are going to be like, okay, well, what do I have to lose? But when you tell people, like you said, one and done, hey, here, take this, you're good. And then especially when you walk it back and tell them, well, you're going to need a boost every six months. People are like, all right, well, jigs up here. And it's always funny because they did knock natural immunity. Well, we don't know how long the antibodies last. Okay, then what about vaccines and boosters? And I'm not against it, but just be honest. If you're honest, people will trust you. You build capital with people when they trust you. But if you treat them like retarded six years or six year olds, they're not going to listen. Eventually, they're going to tell you to go pound salt. Well, and and this is something that Vignier Prasad uh, made a, a really good case for again, which is that uh, trust in public health is gone. I mean, there's maybe a chunk of the, (laughs) there's a chunk of the country that if public health told them now to, you know, there was a joke around like injecting chlorine or, or, you know, bleach or something like that. There was some, some joke meme around that. I do feel like now if uh, Dr. Fauci said, if you, if you did micro dosing of bleach, that would be good. And I, I think some, some people, would do that. And, um, they didn't vote for Trump and, and, uh, you know, and there's going to be a real consistent play there, but, you know, so COVID was bad. It, it, it clearly was bad. It, and I mean, the way we handled it made things worse, like supply chains and all the rest of that stuff, but it made enough people sick and it caused enough problems that we had some kind of dodgy moments there where like some supply chains were unclear and different stuff like that. Like we've got all of the backlog of supply chains now right. and there's economic reasons like overly generous, uh, uh, you know, government stimulus, but then they, they made people stay home. So they kind of had to do something. So it's just, just circular firing squad. It's but, self, yeah. Self looking ice cream cone. Yeah. If we get something like MERS, which they also funded game gain of function research in MERS, MERS is a legitimate, like no, no fudging the numbers, no magic, you know, fairy tales around statistics. It's a no joke, 30% case fatality rate an infection fatality rate. If you get it, you got a, you got a three out of 10 chance of dying. The seven that live have a hell of a time living. Like they, they, it fucks them up. That is a civilization ender because you have enough doctors, enough engineers, enough police, enough fire, enough, uh, you know, medical staff, uh, uh, stock uh, people who stock shelves in, in, uh, uh, supermarkets and stuff sick and dying that all of it grinds to a halt. It's done. And, and this is so one, we, the, the same people who have run the pandemic response, who funded gain of function research in SARS-CoV-2 also appear to have done gain of function research in at least MERS and a couple of other 
you know, 30 to 60 percent infection uh, uh, mortality rate uh, diseases. So we got that to see when that happens. And if that does happen, who's going to trust anybody now? Like wow. it might actually be the thing that I need to do superhuman and heroic efforts to, to save my, my life and my family. And I'm not really gonna, gonna trust those people straight out of the gate. I'm gonna have to start seeing bodies stacked up in the streets before I'm like, Oh, I guess this is the, the real deal. This isn't another, you know, dress rehearsal. This is the, the real thing. So I I'm optimistic on the one hand, but I also, um, I think we're so fucked. I think we're so fucked on so many <laughs> levels. Like, I, I, I am hopeful that something good will come later, but I think about my grandparents' generation where they lived through the Great Depression and World War II. That was a nearly 20-year period of, of heartache and, and terror and, and problems, you know, and I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised that we are in for that. And circling back to one of your original points, we are not the country that we were when our grandparents went through that shit. Absolutely not. We no. are super fragmented. We are at each other's throats at every conceivable level. Um, we have regulatory capture of like every aspect of, of government. And my own re only real hope within that is some of the stuff like what I've seen in Florida where, you know, Florida is like, hey, we might spin up some of our own state level militia and stuff like that. And we're mm -hmm. really going to start taking care of some things at a local level. In, in Utah, they have long had a plan for what they will do when the funding for, you know, the, the federal funding that's supposed to keep schools open. They know that that's going to stop it someday. So what, you know, what do they do when they do that? There are some places that are kind of planning ahead for when some of these um, larger institutional level inputs fail, but not many of them and not the coastal states, not the places with massive population density, yeah. you know, and so that that's going to be tough sledding for those people. And it's, it's uh, has the potential to be really ugly. And I, I just, I see so few people and I don't know what, I, what I would put as a, a probability on that. Is it 5%? Is it 50%? I don't know. But when you talk about like a civilization ending existential threat, that is where you do want to pump the brakes. That's where you want to diversify your risk exposure and start doing whatever the fuck you can to walk this stuff back. And I, I don't see much of that. Right. And nobody has an appetite for it at this point, even if it was a legitimate threat, because the capital you once had with the public is gone. It's gone. And this is why people love Trump so much, just because he was absolutely right when he criticized the media. And I'm not a Trump guy at all. If you look through my Twitter, if you look through my shows, anything. But he was really good and spot on about the media. That that is a constant propaganda machine who just pumps out, you know, BS after BS after BS, and people recognize that. So it's good. But then again, <laughs> you know, if we do get to this civilization ender where we do need, you know, something to really rein something in, trust is gone. But one reason to be optimistic is like you said, there are some people who are starting to plan ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it is good that, you know, I know Brian Sanders was talking about a decentralized food network, which is huge because supply chains are an issue, right? We gave everybody a bunch of free money and what they do, they go on shopping sprees, buying stuff from China. And now all of a sudden we have boats backed up all across the country, you know, all over this country. Well, once again, when nobody produces stuff and you hand everybody free money, 
and you literally all you did is create inflation and those people go on shopping sprees well yeah you surprise it now there's a bunch of goods coming from overseas that we didn't produce and that we now get to consume because we sent them debt <laughs> you know shocker so when these supply chains collapse when or if i should say um to have a localized food network that's important to yep. know your neighbor that's important to you know maybe have you your wife and another few families that are good with you know maybe one of the people staying home to homeschool the kids together that's great getting back to a sense of community you know getting back to the local level or even just a state level where you know you're closer to home that's huge and i think that's going to have to be the way going forward because the federal government do you really trust anybody with your money who can steal trillions of dollars every single year murder children with no responsibility and run up 29 trillion dollars in debt while doing that do you think these people are fit to govern your day-to-day -day life i don't i don't think you do i don't think many people do so going forward you know we got to get back to the america that we once were where we were a nation of um, you know, rugged individuals who aren't dependent on the government. We're dependent on ourselves through robust health, through tight-knit families, tight-knit communities, and maybe even churches. I'm not a religious person, but if that brings the communities back together, then I'm all for it. I think that's the only way out of this. Yeah, I, I agree. And the kind of cool thing about that is what does it do for our quality of life today? It improves it. Right. We, yeah. we have more community. We have more people that, that we know and, and interact with and, and all that. And then what, it, what does it do if things go really hor horrible sideways? It certainly make it far, far better then. So mm -hmm. it's an investment in each other. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I've long said that the world is balkanizing, like it's kind of breaking and fracturing and, and people are like the, uh, I think so much of what some of the pushback of the Middle East with like the United States being in the Middle East, I, I, I think I'm not a, a foreign affairs expert, but it's this culture from outside being foist upon a group of people. And they're like, I don't, I, I don't want it. Like we don't, we don't want this. And so mm -hmm. there's a, there's a, a pushback and oftentimes a really vigorous pushback. And when you look at all the different values. And I know, you, you know, some people will say, I, I'm going to say there's a lot of different values and sensibilities and whatnot within the United States. And some people will say, yeah, you're either racist or not racist. And you know, all, all, all the, and it, it, you know, that's it. Yeah. But I would actually posit that there's a lot more distinction within that. We have big Hispanic groups and we have African-American groups and we have inbred Appalachian white groups. And then we have highly successful uh, uh, you know, Dutch uh, uh, heritage groups in, in Michigan and, uh, you know, Minnesota and all this stuff. There's a lot of different stuff. And, and we've kind of been able to hang together more or less with this idea of being Americans. The idea of being American now seems to be kind of passe. Maybe we'll, we'll revisit that. Maybe yeah. we won't. But there is kind of a reality that the people out your back door and in your community are are your neighbors. And those are the people that, that will ultimately kind of make this stuff work or not. And so it, it could be a really good thing going forward. Like maybe we end up with a, a globally networked food production system that is locally produced, but we do some global distribution where and when that makes sense. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of global trade. I just think things could be smarter 
maybe um, governance happens much more at the local level, which I think would be great. You know, if the Absolutely, if yeah. if my mayor is fucking up, I will go break his kneecaps. You know, and and it, there's transparency there. Whereas like, who who do you go to in Washington D.C. to break their kneecaps when when everything's going sideways? Like, there's just so much more accountability at a local level, and I think that this is something that the American progressive left doesn't appreciate about Europe. Far more of the governance happens at the local level than at the what we would call the federal level. Like they, they do much, much more at the municipal and kind of the state level than what is done here. It, it, it's much like American healthcare. Like we have done everything as backwards as you could possibly do it oh, yeah, yeah. to make it functional, you know? So there, there could be kind of a golden age on the the end of this it's just i i i think there's going to be some rough sledding to get there quite quite frankly right. maybe, maybe not but i i think it could be yeah. right well it's the whole deal with the national debt too which it, it it sounds irrelevant but i'll i'll tie it in um the reason why we never have interest rates go up and no one ever wants to take on the national debt is because there is going to be so much short-term pain with that mm -hmm. because you're going to have to tell people look this bubble's going to have to deflate. All your assets are going to go down. Um, everyone's going to have to default on debt. The you know people who lent loans out, you guys aren't going to get made whole. Like this whole house of cards has to collapse. But in the wake of that, now we get to be a real country again. Where well, and it, and it could be a soft landing with right. some with some preparation and planning. Oh, absolutely. Or you just wait for. It, well, to rattle down on well, its own. Right, right. Yeah. But essentially, what we do is we just kick the can down the road. Any time a crisis happens, we push interest rates lower, just so that way we, you could pay everybody and shut them up for the crisis being. Um, but once again, no one wants to have it happen on their watch. Right. You know. Oh well, the next president can deal with pulling out of Afghanistan. The next president can deal with this. The next president can deal with that. And I think we're running out of road to kick the can down because. You know, we're starting to see inflation now, right? Well, when you print 40% of all currency in existence within a year, prices tend to go up. And then that was under a Republican president, right? They're supposed to be financially conservative, although Trump definitely wasn't. Um, now we have a Democrat in the House. They, they'll straight up tell you, oh, the stuff's paid for. $3 trillion, so it's paid for. Yeah. Well, by who? <laughs> by the Federal Reserve that just printed the money into existence? All right. Well, now we're going to be paying for that inflation. So the, uh, the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell, it's funny, he said uh, inflation was transitory. Well, he was absolutely right. It's transitory to higher inflation. Well, the, uh, the planet is transitory. It was created, <laughs> and at some point, the sun will explode and consume it. You know, I mean, right. it's like, what the fuck does that even mean? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just a dodge in the bullet, because once again, he, they don't want it to fall apart on their watch, but eventually you just have no more room to push it. And then, you know, either you default honestly and tell them, look, we'll bargain with you, but uh, dude, we ain't paying you back all this money or you hyperinflate and then you pay them back in currency that doesn't, you know, get them anything or you go to war with them, which I've heard people, f f you know, joke about, oh, we should just go to war with China. We should go to war with Russia. <laughs> do, do you do you like understand what that means? Do you understand what that looks like? Are you really that fucking dense that you don't understand? There's like millions of people will die, and you you know, hey, we're sending them debt, and they're giving us bad deals, so we should go to war with them. Like just just bid on that for about five minutes and tell me if that makes any sense. But we're not in a good place 
in this country. And that's very, very sad because we all know what it could be. And everybody knows there's kind of something wrong, but no one's putting out the right solutions. And obviously with the current administration, we're not going to see any of that because they're more worried about climate change, which, you know, you wrote, I don't want to say wrote a whole book on it, but you know, you kind of pull the thread on that a fair shake. And um, it's, it's just sad because I, I want to be optimistic and I am optimistic, but it's like the short-term pain associated with all the solutions, it's going to hurt, but you know, you got to go through the withdrawal from heroin to become, you know, no longer an addict. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, there's some, some smart things written and said about the, the life cycle of, of empires and stuff like that. And, you know, the life cycle of democracies and, um, we might just kind of be there, you know, we may to some degree, degree be the victims of our own success. Um, There is absolutely income disparity and wealth disparity in everything in the United States, but it's less than virtually any society that you can right. imagine other than going back to like hunter-gatherer times. You know, it, it, you have to, uh, feudalistic uh, humanity, which is what most of the humanity has existed in, uh, like the Gini coefficient is, you know, like 95% of the wealth was held by like 5% of the the people and, and yeah. uh now it's it's kind of a, a 40% thing, which is, is uh, good for kind of like a, a civilization, but it's also good to the point that people can get lazy and cranky and, and lose sight of the things to be grateful for. And right. so I don't know, maybe, maybe we fucked up. Maybe this is just part of, you know, on a fractal level in this this kind of like living organism kind of kind of uh, you know, kind of scenario. This is just kind of the process that societies go through. They become very, very successful. There's a lot of success comparatively. Mm-hmm. That leads to a downfall. And then maybe uh, maybe something good can come out of that. The, the thing that concerns me is like what, what passes for Western liberal democracies so far has been a once in history event. Like what, what is defined like most of Europe, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, you know, former uh, British Commonwealth and whatnot, I guess India is kind of kind of heading towards that Western liberal democracy to some degree, although the, the Hindu nationalism is kind of kind of heavy and, and kind of interesting. But um, it only happened once and it had never happened before. And like there were a, a, a fair number of the libertarian leaning people, they were like, oh, if we help China industrialize and get more capitalistic, They'll open up on a, a governmental level. That didn't happen. Like the, from an evolutionary perspective, the optimum might be transitory bouts of capitalism and socialism controlled by a government that isn't elected, that is totalitarian and can stay in office for 30 years so they can plan everything and, and not have an every four-year you know, turnover cycle. Like that might evolutionarily be much more optimized for, for you know, success within that, that uh, context. I think it'd be a very dehumanizing world to live in in that that scenario, mm-hmm. but that might actually be the default mode of what is optimum for human governance. You know? Yeah, man, that's it's weird. To oh, think I'm about I'm it. not yeah. the person to talk to if you want to like sleep well at night and stuff. Like, <laughs> <I'm> just... <laughs> yeah, well, I've kept you for 
a lot longer than I thought I would. Um, well, we got to talk something besides protein, carbs, and fat. So I, I actually got kind of giddy about chatting <laughs> outside of my lane. So yeah, yeah, well, you know, Rob, you need to stay back in your lane. So um, when I release this, I'm going to make sure I chop all this out and I'll just Perfect. burn it. Or Good something. call. It's probably <laughs> probably smarter that way. So no, man, yeah, it, it was awesome. And every single time I've heard you talk about the forbidden topics i'm like he has a good perspective on it and like i said earlier it's just because COVID's dragged this all out of us and it's because the government's so big and in every facet of our life that now we don't have any choice but to pay attention to it and find some kind of solution i don't claim to have all those answers i have some ideas that i think will be good overall i don't know if they'll work i hope they will um let's end on a positive note I, I, I think your point about focusing on the local level, that's a win coming and going. It'll make our lives better oh, today. Absolutely, yeah. And, and if we dodge this bullet and, and we're able to pull things back together, it'll still be good. And then if things get squirrely, that, that is definitely, people will do that anyway. But if you start enacting you know, systems of decentralized food distribution and reconnecting with your, your uh, folks in your local area, it's going to be better without a doubt. Absolutely. Um, you're kind of doing that with the Healthy Rebellion. So mm -hmm. uh, let's kind of wrap it on that. How's the Healthy Rebellion doing? And do you see a lot of hope in that, in that people are kind of improving their own lives and improving the lives of them around them? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's interesting because I think about, so it's got about 1500 members. And I think that's about as big as you could get a community like that and not have it start eating itself. Um, sure. The fact that there's a paywall, it keeps some of the riffraff out. So I think the people who show up there, you know, they're just more invested. Um, we have some kind of community guidelines. Uh, we don't need political memes. Like there's literally a billion places to, to do your, to you, you know, your, yeah. yeah, it's just like do that elsewhere. But we do have some rules of engagement around talking about like COVID world events, like, are we going to go to war with Russia and stuff like that? And we have some, some, it, it's almost like a debate uh, team in high school, like where we have some rules of engagement around it. Hey, I have this thing and you lay it out and then people can interact. So there's a little bit of guidelines to keep the, uh, just keep people kind to each other. We can have very vigorous debates and disagreement, but you know, no, don't be a dick. moves the name calling. Don't be a dick. Um, we actually here to try to learn and, and move something forward. And it's worked really well. The, the interesting thing about that is that specifically isn't going to scale, but what's been happening in there is the people in the rebellion get this information, then what they're doing at their local community level, a church, a VFW, whatever, they're getting meetings put together where they end up talking to people about canning food and hunting and, and, you know, backwoods, you know, medical treatment, you know, like survival medicine and stuff like that. And they're, mm -hmm. they're getting groups together. And so if uh, there's this one gal, Rachel, who's really good at like food preparation, canning and a bunch of other stuff. And she's been doing these meetings where she helps her, her neighbors figure out how to do this stuff. And oftentimes they're kind of older people, but they, they missed they missed that, it, you know, we're like our grandparents were very savvy with that. There's this uh, generate, you know, two, three generations of people that don't know how to do these things. So I am seeing this, you know, it's an online place where you can get a lot of information, a lot of good support, but then people are going back to their local communities and doing good, good work with that. But they, it's kind of on them and it's based around their interests. And oftentimes what they do is 
they're like, I don't know how to work on a car. Hey man, can you, I'm going to show you, like, I'm good with archery. So can we trade some archery time? And then you run me through my car and how can it get broken? And how do I, you know, the basics fixing it, like changing the brakes or, you know, whatever. And people are doing some stuff like that. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And it, it is, I do find it to be a chain reaction where if one person does the best for themselves, then other people see that. And not always, but sometimes the consequence of that is, hey, you know, maybe I need to get my ass in gear too. So that's awesome that you built that kind of community. Um, I'm glad that you, that it was cathartic for you to kind of get to talk a little bit more about the forbidden topics than normal. Um, I'd love to have you back on sometime and we could keep kind of tagging on this stuff. Um, this I'll was... bring down property values anytime you want me to come on. So you, um... you, you call it and I'll do it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, I don't think we can get down to a negative property value. So <laughs> it's always appreciated, brother. Um, go ahead, tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, RobWolf.com is kind of the main main place. And like, if you're contemplating nutrition change or whatnot, I've got a ton of free guides on there. I don't even think I ask people for their email. It, it's shopping and dining out guides, how to you know cook and prepare simple meals at home. Um, there's just a ton of freebie material on RobWolf.com. Nice. Well, uh, all in Liberty and Health listeners, go check that out. Pick up your element because that stuff is awesome, especially if you're fasting. That will be a game changer. And uh, until next time, everybody, take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.